0: restaurants unstoppable episode 611 with adam
1: barnoski sometimes people don't even go to an loi stage they go directly to a lease i think an loi is a really important document because it gets all of the most important issues out of the way to find out do you have a deal here you get to negotiate most of the business terms where at the lease, you're going to include all those business terms but then deal with a bunch of other legal issues along the way
2: Are you ready for it It factors,
0: success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Everybody loves Payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider... That's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com unstoppable. And when you run your first payroll, you'll get your first three months Free. Again, that's gusto.com slash unstoppable. I'm sure you've heard of Revel, but have you heard of the Revel Advantage? It is the payment processing solution that seamlessly integrates into your Revel point of sale and platform to create a complete system tailored to your business needs. Rebel manages both your POS and your payments with integrated software, hardware, and credit card processing to save you time and money so you can focus on your business. Learn more at rebelsystems.com slash unstoppable. Here is a statistic for you. Bento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Adam Barnosky and Andrew Wilkinson. Are you guys feeling unstoppable today?
2: Absolutely unstoppable.
0: (laughs) Yes, that is what we like to hear. So Adam Bernowski is a member of the Roberto Israel and Weiner Law Firm based in Boston, Massachusetts. His practice is concentrated in the representation of real estate developers, restaurateurs, commercial landlord and tenants, cannabis operators and developers, and hospitality industry clients in New England. Also, like I mentioned, we have Andrew Wilkinson here, who is the founder and operator of Pizza Llama, a mobile wood fire pizza oven serving maryland for the past four years he's also uh, just a, a listener of here at restaurant unstoppable for i don't know how long andrew
2: uh i'd say it's been like a, maybe a year and a half
0: awesome and really this is an exciting interview for me because one thing i want to do going to the future is really use this platform the, the network that i've developed over the past six years to uh to put these people in front of my listeners or bring my listeners on the show and let these opportunities be opportunities to really take it to the next level and ask real life situation questions. Hopefully that's what happens here today. We're going to be talking about, uh, letters of intent and leasing, uh, some of the things that really distinguish, uh, the the, the, the the characteristics that are unique to this industry are going to come out today's conversation. But first, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with some success quotes and mantras. Uh, why don't you take it away for us, Adam?
1: Yeah, so I always find that it's it's really the people who make it look easiest are likely the ones that are working the hardest. And especially in this industry, to Never Discount, uh, that to be successful... Uh, you got to work hard, you got to plan, and you got to follow through.
0: Yes, I love it. And whenever I hear people uh, use that acronym, it, it, it looks like it's, it's kind of like a duck, right? A duck looks cool and calm on top of the water, but underneath the feet are going crazy, right? And that was the image that came into my mind. Uh, Andrew, what quote do you have for us?
2: So my quote is from uh, Nipsey Hustle. We just lost him on Sunday, so I wanted to pay a little homage. Um the quote is drop the rope.
0: Drop the <laughs> rope. Talk to me about that. How does that resonate with you?
2: Uh what he said about it was everybody's got to climb up but you got to drop the rope.
0: Everybody's got to climb up but you got to drop the rope. I don't know if I'm picking up on it but I'm I'm really curious. Really uh spell this out for me.
2: So um the way I see it is that you know everybody's got to make their way to the top but um when you get to the top you got to drop the rope. For the other people trying to climb up. Ah, uh, okay. And that's really that's- it resonates for me especially today because uh I feel like this uh the situation that I'm in with the the brewery owner, um essentially in this stage he's asking me or, or telling me he's gonna drop the rope um, for me.
0: I dig it, man. Great stuff. Maybe and- we'll get into that as your story unravels uh later on. But for now, um Adam, why don't you kind of just tell us a real quick uh a little bit more about who you are, what makes you an authority on this topic of letters of intent in leasing, especially in the restaurant industry and hospitality, and kind of, uh, yeah, let's just get to know you.
1: Sure, sure. Thanks, Eric. So uh, I'm a lawyer. I'm practicing in Boston. Uh, I've been practicing for about 10 years now. And what my work is, is primarily focused on is commercial real estate and, and hospitality. So I work with a lot of restaurants bars hotels entertainment facilities and uh, restaurant groups but often I work with startup companies so they can be anything from a uh, a mom and pop shop to a uh, you know uh, a, a, an operator that's been you know working for you know a certain number of years and maybe a few partners want to break off and do their own thing and uh, in Boston, there's just been a lot of development in the past 10 years. And specifically within hospitality, You know, it could be because there seems to be such a, a reduction in retail. Uh, most retail has gone online, so a lot of commercial real estate developers want to have a restaurant as an anchor tenant. And that, in combined with just the, the sheer amount of development that's going on and expanding in Boston and elsewhere, Uh, throughout the state, and New England, we see a lot of restaurants, a lot of hotels, a lot of bars. And so that creates just a a whole uh, host of work within within the space. So that's primarily what I do. And uh, as it comes to leasing, you know, I always think leasing is an interesting part of any uh, hospitality project, any restaurant project. What people often discount is how important your lease is this is something that you're going to be living with for if you have a successful restaurant you could be living with it for 20 years and some people drop it in the same hat as they do with their asset purchase agreement which is just essentially the cost that you're 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 buying the business for in many cases but the lease is very 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 important and uh, I always think that if you do it right uh, it can it, it it can really be a critical factor in the success or failure of your business
0: i w- I can't wait to dive into leases, but i want to learn just a little bit more about you what what is it about the hospitality vertical the food and beverage vertical that you think most resonates with you? why choose this vertical out of all the possible verticals you could focus on in law?
1: yeah, so I worked in i worked uh, as a bartender for many years. I worked in restaurants going back as far you know as 15 years old working, uh, working as a busser in a country club. Uh, I worked my way through school. I worked my way through law school. And when I got out, uh, the law firm I was with at the time, uh, did some work within, within hospitality. And, but what I always, so I already have it. I already had an established network within the community and a lot of people that are my colleagues or my clients, uh, in a lot of ways, from those relationships early on but what i love about the business is that it's involves creative passionate people and everyone is looking to build something mm-hmm. it's not like other areas of development where uh there's a lot of other factors that are involved or or with, with litigation where you're kind of trying to figure out trying to solve a problem uh with with hospitality particularly with startup restaurants. You're everyone has the same goal in mind and that that happens when you're buying a restaurant the seller wants to sell the buyer wants to buy and everyone's looking to build something and hopefully uh once it's up and running uh you know these businesses can be very successful and and I just I I just enjoy I really really enjoy the people
0: yeah you know I love that you pointed that out, and I think you hit the, the, the nail on the head when you said there's just so many incredibly passionate people in this industry. But beyond that, a lot of people that need help, uh, a lot of people get so in over their head when they get into this industry and they... they don't realize how much it takes to be successful. And there's a lot of opportunity to help other people in this industry. So I can understand why you'd be so drawn to it. You mentioned something else that I think is really interesting. It's not why we're here today, but I think it's worth bringing to the surface. And you mentioned that you got into this industry because of the opportunity, because of all the retail businesses that are going out of out of business. And because of this, uh, developers are looking for that, like you mentioned, that anchor tenant. I'm kind of worried about this. I think that it's not necessarily a good thing. I think that there's a reason why we're having so much trouble finding employees, and it's because everybody's opening a restaurant. Uh, what are some of your predictions? I'm, I'm just kind of curious to tap into that part of your knowledge. Where do you see the industry going if we open too many restaurants?
1: I, I Herbal, think you're already man. seeing it now. I mean, it, Sorry it, to it, throw
0: that at you. It,
1: it, no, no. I mean, I, I I think you're already seeing it now, it, it, that it, it, it creates an incredibly competitive marketplace. Uh, talent is at a minimum, I mean, you need and not just not just not just, you know, people running your kitchens, your executive chefs, etc. But staffing for for back of the house is very, very difficult, particularly in large cities where the pay for uh, a a lot of back of the house jobs is, uh, it's difficult to live in the community in which you're working. So the commute times for those people end up being pretty substantial. And it it creates, you know, a hardship for operators to find good, valuable staff they can keep. So I think that this will continue to be a challenge. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some sort of a market correction. And I feel like there already is. You see that to some extent where, uh, where certain operators, you know, it doesn't work out. Yeah,
0: um, you know, best case you, scenario,
1: I think that you
0: mentioned something earlier is that it's going to create a very competitive market, and people are going to start treating their employees better to attract onto themselves the, the 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 talent they need to be successful. So I think like all things in life, the cream rises, right? Cream cream floats to the top, and the the, the people who are the most prepared to take the best care of their employees are going to be the ones that do the best, and I think that 's a good thing ultimately for the employees of this industry because they 're going to be taken care of unfortunately, not everybody's going to make it but that 's kind of just the way of life isn't not
1: right and, and you know you, you do you do see just on that note i mean in Boston i 've seen recently uh, there's a few uh, there 's a few restaurant groups that are creating incentives by adding what they call to be a hospital hospitality fee on each check which is um it's what what it ends up doing is is there's less of a disparity between what the front of the house is making and what the back of the house is making there's a hospitality fee that goes directly to back of the house and what that does is it increases just the standard wages that those folks are making and i think that's been very successful in helping that restaurant group be successful because it, it, attracts, uh, it attracts better employees and it, and it keeps employees for longer. All
0: right. Thank you for going into that rabbit hole with me just for a little bit. Uh, I was really curious there. I want to scratch that itch. Uh, but coming back to today's topic, we really were going to dive into letters of intent uh, versus leasing or, or leases, what they are, what the differences are. And then we're going to dive into some distinguishing characteristics uh, that separate the hospitality and food and beverage industry from other industries. So let's start off by talking about what are the differences or, or what do we need to know uh, about letters of intent versus leases?
1: So the, the lease document is, is a much longer document. That, that is the final form. It's the, it's the contract between the property owner and the restaurant operator uh, that includes things like rent, how, how long of, uh, you have the property rights to be there uh, assignment clauses. There's a whole host of, of items in, in a, in a lease and a lease, you know, can be anywhere from a 15 page lease. And sometimes you see leases that are hundred pages. Now what the letter of intent is, is the letter intent of intent is a document. It's normally two or three pages and it's more of a snapshot. You think of a lease more as a movie and the LOI is more of the the preview. So it will have all of your material business terms. And that is some, some, sometimes people don't even go to an LOI stage. They go directly to a lease. I think an LOI is a really important document because it gets all of the most important uh, issues out of the way to find out, do you have a deal here? You get to negotiate most of the business terms, where at lease you're going to include all those business terms, but then deal with a bunch of other uh, legal um, issues along the way.
0: Okay So the analogy that's coming into my mind right now is the LOI is kind of like when, like any relationship when you're dating somebody, right? Uh, the LOI is like, hey, we're exclusive. We like each other. Let's see if we can figure this out and not you know sleep around or whatever. And then the lease agreement is basically like, hey, we're, in a, we're like we're married, right? Like we are legally bound to each other, and now uh, unless we go and bring lawyers into this, we're stuck together.
1: <laughs> I, I like it. Yeah. Is
0: that good? Is it accurate? Like I'm, yeah. I'm taking swings here. You can let me know if I'm missing.
1: No, somewhat. Yeah, okay. I, 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 I can see that. Sure.
0: <laughs> um. So I think we've gotten to the point where it's time to thank our sponsors. Real quick. We'll be right. back. Back. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll taxes, HR, actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you, you've got to compete with the big guys. But how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto, that's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's gusto.com slash unstoppable. Again, gusto.com slash unstoppable. All right, we're back and now we're going to dive into it. Some of the the, the nitty gritty between uh, leasing or I mean, actually I'm curious. Is, is there anything else you're going to dive into with letters of intent? Are we going to dive straight now into uh, leasing and considerations around that?
1: Well, you know, they they go hand in hand. So okay. as we're going to talk about some of these lease characteristics, you always want to keep in mind that LOI. So just really briefly, the the issue with, with an LOI is this, is anything that is material, if you say I cannot pay more than $50 per square foot, it doesn't work for my business model, or I need, you know, X, Y, and Z. And without a doubt, if I don't have those things, then I cannot operate my business. Those are all things to talk and include in your letter of intent. So as we go through some of these other lease considerations, just keep that, that for your listeners should be something that you should keep in mind, which is to say, okay, wow, that, that item is really very important to me. And that way, you're not going to waste anybody's time uh, in trying to negotiate a full lease if, if one of your main business points isn't being bad.
0: All right, cool. Thank you for clarifying that. Let's dive right into it. What are some of the uh, distinguishing characteristics that are unique to the hospitality and food and beverage industry?
1: So there's 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 there are a few. I mean, one one of the biggest issues is that it's 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 a, a restaurant is a higher investment. I mean, you walk into any most office spaces, and what you're going to see is 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 pretty standard. Uh, but when you walk into a restaurant, you have kitchen equipment, you have bar equipment, the tables, chairs, decor. All of the investment and money that it takes to get that space from, in many cases, it'll just be an empty space and to create a full restaurant ends up having a lot more uh, of a higher investment. Uh, And with that, you have a longer construction time. So the time period from when you enter into your lease and you enter the space to when you're up and running is generally longer than in a traditional lease. Uh, You have different operating hours. Again, I'll just make... The, the example of, of, of the office, most offices are more of a nine to five situation where restaurants can be a 6am to a 2am. I mean, they, they, they can really go really into more unique hours. So especially when you're dealing with a, a mixed use building, or you have a restaurant on the bottom floor and tenants above um, the different operating hours creates a, a unique uh, situation when you're negotiating your lease. Uh, you also have uh, your utility requirements are larger. You're going to need more water. You're going to need more ventilation. Uh, you're dealing with, with noise, odors. Uh, so those are just a few things off the top that that distinguish a a, a restaurant lease from a a, a traditional um, uh, retail lease.
0: So I think one of the first questions you want to look or ask is like, am I the first restaurant in the space? If so, have all these rocks been turned over? So maybe that's your first cue. Like, has a restaurant been in here before is that like maybe a good way to really? I mean, you should be digging regardless, but that might be a first good indicator that you might have some hurdles to get over.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot easier, you know. If you are, you know, I, I know that Andrew, you know, f- for example, runs uh, runs a a, a, a a restaurant that primarily serves pizza. So if you are a pizza place and you're buying from a pizza place and you have similar capacity needs and you cook the pizzas the same way. That's going to be a lot easier for you to get into. You can say, okay, this, this is almost a, a turnkey operation. But if you are a, uh, a seafood restaurant and you're taking over from something that's currently you know, a cell phone store, that's going to be it's just a totally different uh, approach to, to your lease and to your build-out and your timelines
0: yeah and just a uh, uh, I just want to throw it in there you should be going into every situation like nobody's ever thought to check out these these different contingencies because maybe the the previous uh Lee C or Lee or got lucky and never nobody ever went down uh and, and, and like challenged them on these situations. Is that kind of a safe thing to say adam
1: absolutely i mean i i, I 'm dealing with a situation right now, funny enough where i have a I have a restaurant client who is looking to buy a current restaurant space and in doing some of the initial due diligence for this transaction we looked that this restaurant is part of a condominium complex and we looked through the condominium docs and read within the uh the condominium bylaws that that the specific use that my client wants there which is nothing unique it's a certain kind of food is prohibited by the condominium documents and so that's one of these small issues right off the bat that you say okay well how are we going to deal with this we're going to is it, is, it, is it worth trying to get the consent of everybody in the condo to consent to this change? Do we want to walk away? But it was a wrinkle that nobody anticipated and the two restaurant operators didn't even know of when they first started the discussions to sell the business.
0: Yeah. So ask all questions and I'm going to zoom to 30,000 feet right quick. Uh, right now we're talking about contingencies and timelines. Adam gave us five bullets, uh, contingencies and timelines, permitted uses, options to renew assignments exit strategies, and miscellaneous considerations. So anything else that we need to know or dive into that are unique contingencies or timelines specific to the restaurant, food and beverage hospitality industry?
1: Yeah. So I think I I, I mentioned one is you want to check all your base documents. If you're part of a condo, take a look at your condo documents. But I would say the two biggest contingencies and timelines that you want to look at are one zoning and two, licensing. So with zoning, for example, you want to make sure that where you're at, you're allowed to have your use. So if there's never been a restaurant there before, you want to dig into your zoning code to say, is a restaurant use allowed? Because if it's not, uh, that can create e- – either it can stop your project dead in its tracks or it can create a, a six-month timeline that you have to go through permits and approvals with your local uh, zoning authorities. So it, it, it differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, state to state. But zoning is really, it's, it's really a big issue. If you have live music, if you have a DJ, uh, all of those different uses that you can have are going to be part of the contingency. So in your lease, bringing it back to your lease, you want to make sure that there is an out in the event that you can't get your permits and approvals. If you need to change your zoning or if you need certain uh, permits for use and you can't get them, you want to be able to say, all right, I tried, this is what I did within a window to, uh, to back out of our, our transaction and you have a termination. Otherwise you're going to be stuck in a lease that you can't use.
0: Okay. And,
1: uh, so that, that that's the same with licensing. I mean, liquor licensing is a huge part of the restaurant business, and those same factors come into play. So, what kind of buffer are we talking about when we're
0: we're looking for these these contingencies? These this this grace period, this period of time to make sure all these zoning and permitting and licensing things need to be checked off. How much time do you think we should give ourselves? What's reasonable?
1: Well, what's reasonable is 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 what's reasonable within the the city or state that you're in. So what you need to find out is you need to talk with your local permitting authorities, consult. I would highly recommend consulting with legal counsel that's that knows the area well to say, how long does a liquor license take to get in this, in this, in this town or in this city? How long do zoning approvals take? Generally, what I like to see is about four months for liquor licensing, and if you do need zoning, I, I like to say between six and nine months, depending on how long that process is going to take. Now, Massachusetts is filled with red tape. It's filled with regulations. It's not uh, an incredibly easy state to get permitting through. So those, I would say, are on the longer, on the longer side of the permitting contingency.
0: Okay. So go to your city uh, hall, find out typical uh, durations, and then maybe add a month or two on for security.
1: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely.
0: So I'm curious. Uh, we're talking about zoning right now and um, licensing. Is this something that is addressed in the letter of intent during that that courting period where we said we're exclusive? Or is this something that doesn't really come into the picture until you start signing leases?
1: I like to see it in the, the letter of intent. Okay. You know, the, Generally, the more that you negotiate a letter of intent, the less you have to negotiate on your lease. So if, if you're going to say, listen, I, I need a liquor license. It's going to take me four months. Uh, and we're not sure this is, you know, this this is a space that might get some objections to the use. So we want to have, you know, a contingency. I would absolutely have your zoning and licensing contingencies in your letter of intent. Got you.
0: And real quick, just want to check in with you, Adam. Or sorry, uh, Andrew. How are you doing?
2: Good. Um, I actually do have a couple questions Sweet. as far as zoning goes. Um, Go for it. I was wondering, in your experience, Adam, if uh, zoning for Restaurants is different than zoning for, say, craft beverages. Uh,
1: that's a great question, and and the answer is is yes. Uh, again, I'll 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 couch it with the caveat that that you have to look at your local zoning code to know for sure. But what I've found is that uh, most zoning codes predate the concept of a craft brewery, okay? So if that's what you're talking about, a craft distillery, a craft brewery. So oftentimes you look at your zoning code and you have a restaurant use, it's right there. You know, everyone, you know, a lot of zoning codes go back to about the late 1950s, 1960s. But the concept of having a craft brewery, a brewery that you brew on site and you serve on site is not in a lot of zoning codes unless they've been updated. So oftentimes those will get categorized as, light manufacturing, for example, which can be a a totally different use in your zoning district. So uh, it certainly is something to look into ahead of time.
0: Awesome. So under this bullet of contingencies and timelines, we've covered business hours, we've covered utilities that are unique to the food and beverage industry, zoning and licensing, sorry, licensing, anything else that we need to bring to the surface before moving to the next bullet permitted uses.
1: No, I think that's about it.
0: All right, cool. So let's dive into this next bullet, permitted uses. What you got for us?
1: Okay, so permitted uses is, is basically what this is, is it, uh, in your lease you're going to have, or in your LOI, I definitely recommend including this in your LOI, is what are you allowed to do there? So again, if you are a pizza parlor, is your use simply pizza parlor? And, and this this can be important because it, 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 it characterizes what you're allowed to do, but also where you are in a, if you're in like a, um, a mall, a shopping mall, for example, or you're in a, a development where there are five or six restaurants, this can be very important for the other operators in the area. For example, if you have, I mean, I think pizza is such a great example, because if you have a use that says you're allowed to do pizza, and you put in a restrictive use saying the landlord is not allowed to rent to another business, Uh, that has pizza, that's protective. So, you know, you're not having a competitor that's right next door to you. But I always say, you know, what's the difference between a pizza and a flatbread? So, you know, does that, can your landlord lease to a space right next door that says, Hey, this is a flatbread shop. But essentially what you're doing is the same thing and they can be a competitor to you and it can be detrimental to your business. So it's good to take a long while to think about what is your permitted use uh, if you want to expand in the future, uh, what what would that look like? Try to put as much as you can into this provision, and to the extent you're allowed to have, or the the landlord will permit some restrictions. Try to really think through those restrictions. What what businesses would you not want to see here? Uh, and not only that, but in the event that the landlord breaches that covenant, what uh, what what are your remedies?
0: So. Um, real quick, I'm curious. I have a, a question on this. It sounds like what you're talking about is like an exclusivity clause uh, or exclusive use of right. What if somebody else is – do you want to find out if somebody else nearby already has that exclusivity before you are making you start making all these motions to open? Is, am I making sense? Cause,
1: yes. Yeah. No, you're okay. absolutely making sense. Now, okay. remember that this really only has to do with when you're working with a landlord that also owns – Normally adjoining properties and and, are, and and is leasing to to other operators there. So it, it really only works to the extent that you can see those those lease agreements. But it's not it's it's really not uncommon to ask a landlord in those situations. Could I get a list of your exclusives so I can find out what are the other exclusives that are out there? Um, and this is all, but this is also important. You know, on the other side, I just I just mentioned when we first started talking about this that you'd want to put in as many uh, as, as many characteristics in that use as possible, but you also want to think down the road in the event that you want to sell your business or sell your lease, really, you know, are you going to be preventing yourself from changing a concept if your use, uh, if your permitted use is too strict, if it says pizza only, like, could you then sell to a, uh, a Mexican restaurant, for example. So you want to have certain carve outs in the event that you, assign or transfer your lease that that allows a a reopening of your your permitted the permitted use
0: got you so i feel like this is kind of touching a little bit on like assignments and exit strategies do you want to maybe am i wrong by saying that we're kind of starting to like bleed over to different topics or is this completely different vertical
1: no no i mean it it it, it lends itself right you know right in there i mean i think that you know when you're talking about assignment clauses and, and transfer releases the, the idea is you have this contract, the operate, restaurant operator has a contract with the landlord. Oftentimes, a lease agreement can be you know, generally a five-year, oftentimes 10 years with a few options. So in the event that a restaurant operator is in the middle of its lease term and is looking to get out, you, you look to the assignment clause. And And this is also a distinguishing characteristic of restaurant leases versus office leases, for example, is that... Due to the nature of the business, there is a very good chance if you are a restaurant operator that you will sell your business down the road. Or, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen. But in the event that your business does not work out the way it does, it's good to vet the assignment clause. And you want to make sure I always recommend that you have as many options as possible. What you don't want to see is language that says, uh, that the la- that 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 there is no assignment um, unless the landlord consents and it can do so in its sole discretion. Because what that means is the landlord does not have to consent to anything. It's good to have language in your lease that that says that uh, number one, it just says that 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 there is an assignment option and that the landlord cannot you know unduly withhold their consent to an assignment or some in the middle is to say that that you're allowed to assign the lease if your proposed tenant meets certain criteria. They're, they're an experienced operator, or they have a net worth of X. Um, there's a whole host of, of characteristics that you might want to include there. But there's a good chance you're going to use your assignment clause. So it's it's important that, uh, that you think this one through. And also that there aren't, you know, there, there's some landlords, there's a lot of leases that you'll see that has what's called a recapture right, which means if you even ask if you're allowed to assign your lease, your landlord can recapture the space and say... You know, thank you, but no thanks, and we're actually going to take the space back over. So, hmm. there again, I, I, I strongly recommend vetting this one uh, very heavily, looking at it thoroughly, and 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 act as though you're you're looking to assign your lease really when when you enter into your your lease agreement. All right.
0: So, what I the the big things I pull from uh, permitted uses, which is the the second bullet we're on right now, is you got to ask yourself, what am I allowed to do? Uh, has anybody put in an S exclusivity clause, and then ask your landlord for a list of exclusives is the big takeaway. Any other big takeaways from what you share with us that we should highlight before moving to the next bullet?
1: No, I think that covers it. Okay,
0: cool. Uh, The next bullet you shared with us is options to renew. Dive into what you mean by that and what we can do.
1: Yeah. So your options to renew, this is essentially uh, additional terms of your lease. So if you have a If you have a a lease that is five years and you have, you know, two options to renew at five years each, what you essentially have is a five year lease, uh, which could if you elect uh, your options could be up to a 15 year lease. So options are important. They're incredibly important. If you don't have an option in your lease, then if you have a five year lease, your lease is done after five years. You have to fully renegotiate your lease. Uh, I like to put as much, again, as much about your options to re- renew in your letter of intent as possible. Um, but I think the, the most the most important aspect for an option to renew is details. So let's just say, for example, you have a five-year lease and you have one five-year option. You want to know, when do I have to tell the landlord uh, that I'm renewing? Uh, if I don't tell the landlord by a certain time, am I waiving my right to renew? Uh, what will the rent be? Is there a rent calculation? And I, I think that the, the better, the more detail you have, the better. What you don't want to have is a situation where you say you got a five-year lease with a five-year option and rent will be determined at fair market rent to be determined at that point in time. Because what happens when when, when you go that route, you're essentially just renegotiating your lease. So you want to have the ability to have a mechanisms for, what your rent's going to be, or if you just say it's going to be fair market value, you want to have a mechanism for determining what fair market value is. Are you going to bring in an appraiser that's going to make that determination? Uh, How does that work? What's the timing look like? And uh, the reason why that's important, not just operationally, but it's also important to the value of your lease. If you have strong options with strong renewal terms, and you're looking to sell your business, a big asset of your Sale is your lease. And if the more years you have on that lease, the more valuable your business can be.
0: So just to kind of summarize, uh, really what you're doing with the option to renew is you're, you're trying to avoid going through the whole negotiation process again. Uh, and maybe this helps you get grandfathered into certain uh, scenarios that are more beneficial for you as time goes on and marches forward as things change, as rates go up, things of this nature. And then also the other big takeaway from that is pay attention to the details, get as specific as possible. Uh, You mentioned uh, like at what day do I have to renew, like the date of renewal? What are some of the other details that you think we should really pay attention to?
1: Okay. So yeah, your date for renewal, you you know, the, from an operator's perspective, the shorter of a timeline, the better. So, you know, often the landlord will say, "I need you need to tell me a year in advance." Now, that's difficult in the restaurant business because you might not know a year out whether you want to renew your lease. Six months is 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 pretty pretty much market standard. So, you know, within six months, because if you don't renew the lease, the landlord's going to want the opportunity to market the property. Uh, so, that timeline is good. Again, y- you don't want uh, too too long of a timeline or too strict of a timeline. Um, so that's one characteristic. The other is in the event that you know sometimes it's, if you if you have let's say you have a ten year lease with a ten year option, sometimes it's too speculative to say we know exactly what rent will be. So you'll say it's going to be fair market fair market rent. And then what I recommend is you have a way to determine what fair market rent is. Often it'll work like this you'll say, I'd like to renew. The landlord will say, fantastic. This is what I think fair market rent is. The tenant will say, great, let's, let's continue on. Or the tenant will say, I don't believe that that's what fair market rent is. And then you'll have terms in your lease that says, okay, now the landlord will go get an appraiser. The tenant will get an appraiser. Those two appraisers will, will determine what fair market rent is. And oftentimes they'll hire a third appraiser that will determine which one is closer to what what the market is. And but this next aspect is what I think is most important is once you find out what fair market value is, you want for the tenant the ability to terminate the option because let's say that you have all intents of going forward for another ten years and you've just missed you don't know what the market rent will be, and the market rent ends up being you know thirty percent higher than what you're paying now, and you simply cannot operate uh, with those figures. it's really important that you don't commit to Uh, a term where you don't know what the rent, uh, what the rent will be. So having that right to terminate after your fair market uh, value determination is, is is a very, very important part of the the option to renew.
0: Beautiful. Thank you for getting into that detail. Uh, Andrew, any questions before moving on or pulling back more layers?
2: Um, I did have a question about the uh, fair market value determination. Um, Well, actually, you answered it. I was going to ask if there's flexibility in a lease with the determination of fair market value. Um, You know, if it could go down, usually I know it goes up. So, but you kind of answered the question. So,
0: So the next bullet, I think we already kind of dove into assignments uh, already. Maybe you can just recap that for us. But we also have exit strategies here. So, uh, real quick, summarize assignments for us and uh, exit strategies.
1: So, yeah, so we talked about this a little bit earlier, talked about negotiating your assignment clause. Uh, there's also the idea of of assignment versus subletting. So subletting is is essentially where you are almost acting. Your business is almost acting as a as a sub landlord, really, and leasing a space to another party. So you're almost acting as a as a middleman or a buffer between the new tenant or subtenant and, and your landlord. Um,
0: so I feel like this might not to like be a spoiler alert. But I think this might be something that. Uh, Andrew, you might want to pay close attention to because you're going to have a lease uh, from somebody who is, or who already has a lease. And one of the questions that I know was interested to you was that, are we going to be able to, are we going to have to operate under the same lease or am I going to have to get my separate lease? And maybe even you might want to lease out your pizza place to somebody else later in this space. So you can go out and work on other projects, right? So it gets
1: kind of confusing. Uh, does that make sense, Adam? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that 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 totally makes sense, and it's and it's and it's a common it's a common issue that you see uh, with with people who want to sublet, you know, maybe a portion of their space or all of their space. Um, and we and we can get into that, you know, a little more now or, or or later. But the 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 other issue I wanted to mention about you know assignment and exit strategies, just bringing it back to that that point, is. If you're, if, if, if as a business you, you, you sell your restaurant, uh, through your assignment clause, a big consideration you want to think about is, is what is your post assignment liability? So, under the lease, for example, if you sell your business, you walk away, you're no longer involved in the space, and the new tenant then fails during the term of that lease, can the landlord then go after you and your business for? uh, for the default. So are you still on the hook for payments? Uh, that's something you want to negotiate. If you have a personal guarantee, does the personal guarantee expire now that you're no longer on the lease? Uh, and these are, sometimes these are situations that are overlooked and they can come back to haunt you because you might have a 10 year lease. You're three years into it. You assign it to a new business and five years down the road, you get paperwork and you're being sued By the landlord, because the new operator has failed, and there's still two years of lease payments that are that are owed. And that can be a very, very expensive proposition, particularly when you're that far out of the business.
0: Got you. So up to this point, under uh, exit strategies and assignments, uh, you want to make sure you have a lease assignment, sublease, which basically permits you to sublease that space to somebody else if you want to go on and do different things. Uh, And the post-assignment liability, if you go on and do other things, are you liable, is what I got from that. Uh, Anything else worth bringing up regarding exit strategies? I think this is a really important segment of today's conversation because so often when we are getting into a new space or uh, a a new, you know, our dreams are coming true, right? This is what we work so hard for. It's happening. And we, we get like puppy eyed and just like, just so like nothing ever could go bad, but we don't think about all the, the, the things that could go bad that we need to protect ourselves from. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think, I think the most important things you look for are number one, that you have the option to assign and you want to make sure that that is, it's not too, uh, it's not too arbitrary that that you're, you're aware of what the criteria you need to meet to assign your lease. And two, that once you assign it, you are free from the lease. Uh, and if you're not free, then maybe you're you're free after a year or two, but you want to make sure that you limit your liability, uh, after you sell your business. And, and I, and I agree. It is, it's, it's, it's almost like a prenuptial agreement in a way. It's trying to Think of a divorce, going back to your original thought. It's 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 almost trying to think of a divorce when you're getting married. So exactly. It's it's a diff it's a difficult conversation to have, but you want to make sure that that you're covered.
0: So one thing that I think falls underneath um, assignments and exit strategies is the idea, or maybe not necessarily assignments, but definitely an exit strategy is gross sales termination, where you go into a space, the the landlord is saying you're going to make such and such money if you operate here. And then they, they don't bring you that business. Another scenario that might be of particular interest to Andrew, uh, where he's being promised a certain amount of customers because it's a popular space. But then the uh, gross sales just aren't there. And now you can't sustain your business off of this the space that you're leasing. Uh, what do you know about that?
1: Uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't see that all that often in leases where, where the landlord is guaranteeing some sort of a threshold. Uh, but if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's part of the discussion, I mean, what a great exit strategy that would be if you're able to negotiate to say, you know, you you need to pull in 1.5 million or $2 million in gross sales annually. Uh, in order to to function and the landlord will allow you to get out of the space if, if you 're not meeting those numbers uh, you probably you probably find that more in a scenario in which the landlord is participating in uh, in the profits to some extent uh, but again that 's not something that I see very often all right cool.
0: anything else worth bringing to the surface under this bullet of uh, assignments
1: and exit strategies uh, unless there are any questions, I think we've covered a lot there you got anything,
2: Andrew? I do, actually. Uh, We didn't touch on this, but um, I've been kind of wondering it for a while. Um, Can you kind of explain what first right to refusal is and how it actually works? And if you're actually guaranteed anything real with that?
1: Now, are you talking about a a first right of refusal to rent or to buy? To buy. Right. So that that happens... uh, Yeah. I mean, the the short of the short of the answer is, uh, do you have an absolute right? Yes, you do. Uh, Again, you want to make sure that you vet your right through legal counsel, you have to make sure that it's, you have to look at at the laws of your state, uh, because they can vary, you know, whether or not they need it, whether or not your your, uh, uh, right needs to be or your lease document needs to be recorded at the registry of deeds to put the world on notice that you have this right. But, uh, but yeah, they, they they can take all forms. I mean, the, the right of first refusal, it, it, it can be really as complicated uh, or as simple as you'd like it to be. But generally, just like we talked about options to renew, there are certain triggers that are involved. And oftentimes it'll say that if the landlord has For example, an offer on the table that they are required to come to the tenant to say, "Hey, there's this offer. The purchase price is X. The the other terms are, you know, A, B, and C, and that you, within a certain period of time, within a window, thirty days, sixty days, et cetera, can say, we would like to accept those terms, and then you move forward with the purchase of the property." Um, sometimes people like to go as far as to say that that you, you pre-negotiate a purchase and sales agreement, leaving out some of the material terms such as price and closing time periods. And that, that can really be helpful. Um, so it's something you don't have to negotiate down the road in the event that you elect to to purchase the space. But uh, but again, to answer your question, do you have a right there? Absolutely. And, it, and if you have a right of first refusal that's violated... Uh, you, you certainly have legal recourse to stop the sale.
0: Awesome, thank you. You good there, Ad, uh, Andrew? Yeah. All right. Sweet. So one more bullet before taking another break to thank our sponsors, and that's just mis, uh, miscellaneous considerations. What we what have we not considered up to this point, Adam?
1: So there's a bunch. You know, I, I'll have the caveat being that there's there's probably 50 things that we didn't cover <laughs> here, but a few a few to, to, to think about are. For restaurants, uh, are are one, one is a relocation clause. Um, I'm seeing this very very regularly in new construction, especially where you have uh, several different, uh, where you have a, a, a landlord that has several different spaces within a real estate development. And a relocation clause is basically the landlord saying that during the term of the lease, if we want to relocate you to another space, that they have the right to do that. And those can, that, that clause can be as simple as that to say, we have the right to relocate you. Uh, from the tenant's perspective, you want to say, no, you don't, or you can only with our consent. I mean, when you spend all that money in a build out and, and your, your customers know where you are, they know how to get there. You have regulars that like a certain seat at your bar, for example, or they just, you know, there, there's certain characteristics to a space that you don't want to change. Uh, and if in the event that your landlord forces you to do it, I mean, I always recommend having, having limitations saying you can only move us once during the term, or, uh, if you move us, it can only be within a 30 day window and you have to pay for build out and you have to pay for, uh, business, the the cost of business interruption to cover, to cover our costs. There's a whole lot of issues that go on in that, but, but relocation clauses I'm seeing more and more often again in new construction. So, um,
0: relocation clause marked it. What, what else?
1: Uh, another is, is your default provisions. You want to look at in the event your landlord defaults, uh, what are, what are your remedies? What can you do? You know, if, if, if your landlord has to perform, if they have to do certain repairs and they're simply not doing them, uh, what can you do? You have to, you want to, you want to play through the tape and really think through how you're going to enforce your rights. Um. So that's that's I would say another bullet point is going to be your your default provisions and your remedies. Just keep going, man. You're on a roll. Anything else? Okay. <laughs> uh. You know, w- one last one is is to think about is is operating costs. A lot of times you have in in leasing what's what's called a triple net lease. So you're you're responsible for your rent, insurance, real estate taxes in and, and common area maintenance. So again, where you have a, a landlord that owns, let's say a, a, a real estate development that has 10 retail spaces, you want to look very, very closely at what your operating costs are, because as an operator, you're going to have to pay for a percentage of those monthly and annual operating costs. So, you know, for example, if the, if the landlord is trying to entice a really attractive tenant to come into the space next to you, and they give a tenant improvement allowance of 5 hundred thousand dollars can they use those those incentive costs can they offset them as a an operating cost on the entire development so you end up paying a percentage of that restaurant's cost that's that's one of probably a hundred different things you want to exclude from your operating costs so keep a close eye on what's included um yeah, so I would, I would say that those, those are probably three, three of the main other considerations you want to look at.
0: Well, we've covered a lot up to this point. There's been a ton of value. Thank you, Adam. We've got to take one more break to thank our sponsors, and they will be back to share Andrew's story, and specifically this opportunity he has in front of him and some of the questions specifically to uh, the decisions he needs to make. So we'll be right back. that you love the most about Rebel Systems, what would it be?
2: It's definitely their vast reporting abilities on the back end. We utilize a lot of the reports such as speed of service, taxes, sales reports,
1: labor reports. It's all there to help you run your business.
0: Beautiful. Guys, and if you're listening to this, Revel works with businesses that are looking to implement cutting-edge technology that helps increase revenue, improve efficiencies, and enhance experience of their employees and their customers. To learn more, head over to revelsystems.com unstoppable. hospitality online with Bento Box by signing up today at slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. All right, we're back in real quick. We're just going to share Andrew's story. So again, Andrew's been listening to the show now for about a year and a half. We've been connecting for about a year and a half. I I paid him a visit at his uh oven trailer when I was out in Maryland and uh, just a really great guy doing really great things. So Andrew, real quick, why don't you just uh, take us on like a fast forward version of your journey, getting into the situation and uh, now where you are today with what's unfolding in front of you.
2: Sure, Eric. Um, So about four years ago, I started Pizza Llama. Uh, I was previously making free pizza for these monthly music shows that me and my friends were putting on. Okay, that explains your Instagram
0: me- handle, Free Pizza. I was curious about that. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, you're fine. That does explain the Instagram handle. It even gets a little deeper than that, but we don't have to get into that right now. Um, but that inspired me to take my skills to the next level. Like I always loved pizza, but I didn't really realize how much I really loved it until I started making it. Um, so yeah, about four years ago, I decided I wanted to start a mobile wood-fired pizzeria and make the best pizza I could. So I'm actually Um, super
0: curious. I want to pull back a layer here. How were you – were you making money off free pizza? It was like donation only? Like How was that going? Explain that.
2: So we would pay for the ingredients. Uh, We'd kind of like figure it into the cost of the show. Usually tickets were like $10 or $15 depending on the music acts that we got from out of town or whatever. Um, And it was a multi-genre show. And the point of it was kind of like bringing all these genres together. If the music can't bring people together, well, the pizza will. Got gotcha. you. Um, and so, you know, you buy a ticket to the show, you get free pizza all night and gotcha, we had a certain gotcha. amount we would make, but I was doing like 60 pizzas out of a home oven in a couple hours. And it was crazy.
0: So you caught the, you caught the bug. Uh, yeah. Now you're thinking about doing this full time <laughs> and uh, pizza llama was born. Where were you uh, four years ago? How take us from that point and kind of how you, you scaled and how
2: you got to where you are now? Uh, so yeah, basically I just started like researching hard, you know, um, and I paid for a couple classes just to get my education on, on equipment and you know certain skills for my industry. Um, and then I just got to it. I saved up a bunch of money. Uh, uh, got a loan, bought my oven, and uh, never looked back, really. And that was four years tough. ago when you made the purchase. Yep. Awesome.
0: And what I love about your story up to this point, Andrew, is that you just started, right? And you didn't go big right away. And I think a lot of people get in trouble because they try to go big. They have this vision of their dream restaurant and they try to pull it off on day one, but just start small and, and figure it out as you go and bust your ass and create opportunities. And that's kind of where you are now, where you went out there, you've improved over time. You fine you tuned your skill. Uh, you've attracted onto yourself people who can uh, give you what you need to take this thing to the next level. So take us to that point. How did this opportunity come across you?
2: So it's funny that you say uh, starting small because um, this went. I usually had a, a part-time job um, for the first two and a half years. I was working pretty much full-time while I was doing this. Um, last spring, I decided to to leave my job and c- pursue this full-time. Um, and I don't know if about everybody else, but in Maryland, the weather really sucked last year. So it was a, a wake-up call, and it was super tough. Um, and this winter, you know it gets really slow in the winter. We're outdoor business. Um, I pretty much had to decide what I was going to do. Like, okay, am I, am I looking for jobs or what? And I actually scaled back even more. I had to get even smaller than what I originally started with. So, uh, and this gets into the story of, of my opportunity right now. So I bought these little, these little electric ovens, um, that pretty much put out the same quality of pizza that my wood fired oven does. Uh, And um, I've been doing like, you know, in-home dinners and personal chef type things and and pop-ups. So I did a pop-up at this brewery and the feedback that the brewery owner got was, I guess, incredible. And he started asking mutual friends uh, what they thought about me and stuff. And then he basically just approached me and um, asked me if I wanted to open up in his brewery.
0: Okay, so we might as well start bringing Adam into the conversation at this point. Uh, why don't you explain to Adam uh, some of the concerns, uh, some of the things that you think he should know, or maybe, Adam, you have some questions for Andrew that will help you better guide him through the this, this situation.
1: Are you just at the point of discussions? Have, has, has the brewery uh, provided any sort of a pathway as to, as to how they want you to be involved from, from a leasing perspective?
2: So he's really, um, he's keeping me really involved with that, I think. Uh, So we don't have, they haven't given me a pathway. We don't have an LOI. Um, I think he came to me as soon as the idea popped in his head and we're kind of moving forward together, I assume with it. Um, And uh, one of the tricky things about it is that he, I don't think he he has a clause in his lease that allows him to sublease. Um, And he's a little worried about, approaching the landlord with that as the landlord might try to take advantage of that.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, I mean, that, that's, that's always a tricky, a, a tricky issue. I mean, I, I always recommend, you know, anybody in, in your position to, to take a look at the lease. I mean, I think at a minimum, you're going to want to say, Hey, you know, as I'm looking through this, you know, could I take a look at your lease agreement? Because that lease is going to, is going to, uh, put a light on a lot of the mystery that you're dealing with right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, I recommend you want to make sure that you look at the, look at the assignment clause, look at the, uh, at the sublease clause. Um, and, and, and find, find, find out if in fact this, this individual is, is you know, is, or is not allowed to, to, to do this. But, you know, at a minimum, you would want to make sure if you take the sublease approach that you're really treating your, uh, this brewer as a, as a landlord. So all the things we've talked about today are, are something you want to, to, con- to consider, because all of those same elements are going to be at play. Um, but another factor you want to look at when you're a subleasee, which is what you would be is, is to make sure that you have language in your sublease agreement that, uh, That that ensures that your that the brewer is going to be in compliance with his master lease because that that creates an additional layer of of complexity there because you're not just a standalone operator that's dealing with a landlord you're 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 going to be an operator operating in somebody else's space dealing with your sub landlord who is then also dealing with the master landlord so there's more room for problems there. So, yeah, Adam. Trickle down,
0: Adam, that. real quick. Yeah. So, basically, are you saying that in the event that uh, Andrew's landlord says I'm done with this brewery, that the master landlord will try to put all the burden on Andrew? Is that the, the scenario you're painting? Uh,
1: I, I, well, I, I would really hope not. I mean, okay. the, the the bigger the bigger issue that you're going to have is 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 that 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 Andrew could be operating his pizza place, doing very very well. Uh, you know, maybe hiring staff and, and operating and, and the, uh, and, and the brewery could, could default on their lease. And then due to no harm of your own uh, you are now in a situation where you don't have the, the, the property rights to use the space. So that's, you know, that, 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 that's probably for another discussion, but there's a, there's a lot of issues in play there that you always deal with when, when you're a sublease now, um, Another situation I've seen, and again, this is, it's based on jurisdiction. It's based on the laws of your state. But what I've seen people do before when they're trying to uh, circumvent uh, the sublease issues are going into a joint venture where I've seen uh, there be a parent company and the parent company is the tenant under the lease. And under the parent company, you have two oftentimes you'll see them as limited liability companies, but there's a whole host of reasons to have different corporate entities, but you have two different companies. One, for example, would be a brewery company and the other would be a pizza company. So you, you end up working within your corporate structure to deal with how those relationships within the one space work. But from a tenant landlord perspective, the landlord's really only dealing with this one company. Um, Now, landlords will try to stop that sort of arrangement by saying that, for example, if the tenant company uh, changes ownership, sometimes they'll say if it changes ownership by 1% period, that you have to get landlord's consent. Uh, Sometimes there's, there's there's different language that I've seen in lease agreements. But Andrew, for you, what I'd highly recommend doing is when you're looking through your lease, don't just look at the sublease clause, but look at the assignment clause and find out if there's any of that restructuring language that would trigger an assignment. If there's no restructuring language, then, you know, that might be a pathway forward. It might be something for you to look at as well.
2: Yeah. We actually have been discussing a little bit, um, the possibility of partnering up, uh, and that way he's still, you know, we operate under his lease and we don't have to worry about a sublease. So,
1: right. That's, but yeah, and it, and it's certainly, I mean, that's certainly something that's easier to do before you enter into your lease than, than while you are. I mean, right. you got to remember if you, if you get in there and I, you know, I don't know, I don't know all the details of your situation, but if you're going in there and you're going to build out a kitchen, I mean, the landlord will have some questions. Mm-hmm. Um, And, and like we talked about before with zoning, permitting, licensing, all of those issues, you want to make sure that, those are all covered before you start putting your your, your time and money into this because uh, it could be a costly endeavor. Um, and if you can't do ultimately what you want to do, um, you could be out of pocket for for a fair amount.
0: Yeah, right. And uh, Andrew, if you do end up taking the partnership uh, route, uh, I interviewed David Denny, who might have some uh, great advice around partnerships for you to check out. Um, any other questions for Adam? You have locked and loaded, Andrew.
2: Uh, I do. I, right before, right, real quick before I asked it, I want to say that that David Denny episode is probably one of my favorites. Okay, cool. Glad Both of them, that. actually.
0: I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes if you guys are listening. While he's looking over his notes, I have a really quick question for you, Adam. Uh, so Andrew had mentioned that uh, his uh, the, the subleaser is concerned that the master leaser, or the I don't know the, the technical terms. I'm showing my ignorance right now. Uh, he's a, a concerned about what that that uh, the person who who owns the, the building might do or how they might take advantage of the situation. How would a, uh, a master landlord, what's the, give, give me the, the technical word. So I don't sound like such an idiot. What's the, the, the first, uh, so in the,
1: the, it, it, if, if you're dealing with a, if you're do, if you're dealing with a sublease, the property owner is going to be called the master landlord or the master okay. landlord. the,
0: the, the master landlord. What are some things that the master landlord could do in this scenario where he could really throw like, why would, why should Andrew be worried about the master landlord? Maybe that's way uh, too well, general Andrew, abroad. I mean, but.
1: Are, are you, are you talking about in the, in the event that the brewer is just, Bring bring the topic and question up to the master landlord to say, can I bring this operator yeah. in?
0: How would the master landlord take advantage of that situation? I think is the words that maybe Andrew might have used. What things do we need to do uh, there?
1: Well, I mean. At the outset, I mean, f- it's less of a concern for Andrew and more, I would think, for the brewer. But if you're, you want to make sure, sh- if, there's, if there's the event, there's a recapture right in your lease. I mean, the landlord could take advantage of it by taking the space back over and leasing it to another party if there, yep. if there is language that allows the, the, the landlord to do that. Uh, but the other concern is that, uh, that when you're, whenever you're reopening a term of your lease, whenever you're saying, listen, there's no sublease provision in here. Uh, we want to amend the terms of your lease. It's really a reopener to amend anything that you'd like, because there's going to be a give and a take there. So if, you know, if, if, if the, if the landlord feels that the business is being much more successful than it originally thought and wants to try to increase rent as part of the, the, uh, the agreement to amend and allow a sub, a sublease, uh, that could be one thing. Um, there's a whole host of things that you're looking at there. I mean, it really, anything's on the table.
0: So, we've covered a lot today. So specific to uh, the scenario where maybe Andrew and his partner do really well and the master landlord wants to take advantage of the success they're having, where are we looking to protect ourselves? What specific thing are we going to, to make sure that certain words are in place? Well, I mean, I,
1: I, I unfortunately unfortunately you're, you're where you're dealing when, when you're a suble when you're looking to sublease a space and you're dealing with a master lease that's already in place you really are uh, you're really beholden to the terms yes. that are already there so in, gotcha. in those scenarios there's not a whole lot that you can do about the current terms unless you're just looking to reopen the entire thing which from a sub a sub lessee's perspective is very very rare okay what i would think in andrew's capacity what somebody in their position wants to do is that there are as many protections in place between the uh the subtenant being andrew's company and the and the brewery operator you want to make sure that that is vetted this almost in a lot of ways the same way at least would be and and you, you go along with a lot of the the uh the bullet points we've talked about today
2: if you open up those negotiations for the master lease uh, and say, say me and and the tenant did not agree with some of the changes that the the lesser wanted to make, um, is that is that is the lease now open to be changed no matter what, or is that kind of a two party thing where we say, oh, we're not into that, and then it just closes the the lease back up?
1: Well, you know, one one thing that 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 is important to look at here is unless you are doing some sort of a joint venture, if you are going under the traditional sublease um, arrangement, you there's, there's no privity between you and the master landlord. So mm-hmm. you are really dealing only with the operator and then the operator is dealing only or is dealing both with the master landlord and you. So What I've seen in the past is where people haven't, sometimes people have an LOI to a sublease. The LOI might say that the the entire deal is contingent upon the operator getting X, Y, and Z terms changed in the master lease. And if those terms cannot be changed, then we don't have a deal here. So that's a good way for the subleasee to try to uh, leverage their position to change terms in the master lease, is to make sure you have as many contingencies as possible. So you can escape from this deal if you don't get what you want.
0: Okay. Awesome. Andrew, any other questions before we start to wrap things up and uh, say goodbye to Adam?
2: Yeah, just one more. Um, I wanted to know if, if there's any, way, any other ways I might be able to insure my residence. You know, if I do get in there, um, maybe whether it is under a, a sublease or a partnership or anything else? Is is there other ways to like ensure my residence so I'm just not getting kicked out on the curb? Not that I think this guy would do that to me, but worst comes to worst. Well,
1: what, what I what I always suggest with with either, if if whether you're in a lease or you're in a sublease, you want to make sure that your you, you take a good look at the tenant's default language. So you're going to have a whole portion of your lease or your sublease that spells out how the landlord uh, can get you out. And so what, what I, what I suggest is that you look at that and you want to make sure that you have strong notice provisions. So let's say you don't pay rent for some reason, maybe that your bookkeeper hasn't sent out rent. You know, that's a very simple duty that you have as a tenant to pay rent. You know, it's always helpful that you have to get a notice from your landlord saying, Hey, you haven't paid rent. You have to pay rent within five days or else it's a default. Because under some leases, if you don't pay by the first of the month, it's an automatic default. And the landlord can do what they, whatever the remedies are for them. So you want to make sure that there's as much of a buffer as you can possibly make between some inaction on your part and the remedy of the landlord. So the longer that notice timeline can be and the more requirements are, are uh, made of the landlord before they can act on a remedy, the better.
0: And take Thanks. advantage of your Google Calendar to alert you when that time comes.
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely
0: (laughs) um awesome stuff today guys really this has been a great conversation uh the first of its kind uh connecting my listeners with my guests uh to mesh things out to learn on the spot uh exciting uh packed full of great advice thank you adam and thank you andrew for joining me any other thing we want to get out before we say goodbye now's the time
2: is it loi legally binding
1: uh well that's i'm going to give you the lawyerly it depends <laughs> it's, gonna de- it, it's gonna depend. It's gonna be de- dependent on the jurisdiction you're in, the state that you're in, and the specific language in your LOI. But yes, there have been, There's recent case law that does make certain LOIs binding if there are certain terms in there. So again, that's gonna be got to be on a state by state basis. But you know, treat treat the LOI as if it's binding. That's the way I like to look at these things. So,
0: A couple things I want to mention uh, before saying goodbye. Uh, good friends over at restaurantowner.com, they have a checklist that I want to bring your attention to, the restaurant leasing checklist that I'm sure it covers a lot of what we covered today. I'll link to that in the show notes. And they also have a no binding letter of intent draft that you guys can pick up over there too which again i'll link to in the show notes this is episode 617 head over to restaurant unstoppable.com slash 617 for some a summary of today's discussion and a link to all the tools and sources resources i just mentioned and adam how can we connect with you if uh, we have more questions if we're in the new england area maybe uh, massachusetts and we need some legal advice what's the best way to connect
1: Sure. So uh again I'm I'm with Roberto Israel and weiner. You can go to R I W and you can feel free to shoot me an email. My email is A-R-B at R I W Beautiful.
0: And uh Andrew, why don't you throw your handles out there in case the folks at home wanna follow as well.
2: Uh my personal handle is at free pizza, F R E E P Z A. And uh my business handle is at underscore pizza llama as in the animal
0: beautiful awesome stuff today again guys thank you so much both of you for for joining us uh for providing value there is no questioning adam andrew you are unstoppable
2: thank you thanks (laughs) it's been a privilege cheers